are listening to The Ant Hill with me, Annabelle Bly and Will De Freitas. The Ant Hill is a new podcast from The Conversation UK, where we'll bring you interesting stories from the world of academia. For our first episode, we're exploring the theme of time. We spoke with an array of academic experts about everything from the relationship between time and how ticklish we are to whether time travel could ever be possible. To kick things off, we're going to take a look at how and why time is measured the way it is. Gemma Ware, our society editor, brings this brief history of telling time. It must have been annoying having to rely on a sundial. One of the first ways that humans started to measure time, sundials used the shadow of the sun falling on a stick or a grid to measure the intervals between the sunrise and sunset. But, as Ken Grattan, Professor of Scientific Instrumentation at City University London, explains, they did have their drawbacks. It's a very good way of of measuring the uh, length of the natural day and then dividing that up into segments. Uh, of course, the requirement for that is that you have sunshine, and uh, sundials don't work during the night, uh, so that really means that uh, half of the year uh, you're not going to be able to use a sundial. And, of course, the sun doesn't always shine, and particularly in uh, uh, the latitudes at which we live, then uh, using a sundial really just doesn't work very well, uh, apart from in the summer. Ken's going to accompany us on a brief journey through the history of telling time, from sundials to the atomic clock. So as it became clear that sundials only did half the job, what did people try next? You could use a candle, the rate at which a candle burns, uh, and measure that off uh, against time. Uh, the, uh, the Romans developed a water clock where the, uh, uh, the flow of water uh, was, was used to, to, to measure time. And of course you can then calibrate one against the other. So you can use a sundial at the same time as a water clock, calibrate it, and then you could take your water clock in and use it at night when there isn't sunshine. And obviously do the same, say, with a candle clock. Uh, the, the pendulum clock then is something which developed uh, in, the, in the Middle Ages and uh, uh, the um, consistency with which a uh, pendulum swings is, is something that uh, can be used and has been used for many centuries to measure time. But that still wasn't good enough, particularly on a ship where a pendulum doesn't work very well in big swells, until along came a man called John Harrison. Clocks really developed from being uh, the sort of curiosities that people had in their house, which were uh, nice to have uh, into a a true scientific instrument. In the 18th century, the the need to measure latitude, uh, which required you to both measure time where you were and to measure time at the the port uh, from which you left, then encourage the development of accurate mechanical clocks. Uh, the work of John Harrison in this country in the, from the 1720s onwards uh, produced a really excellent uh, mechanical clock which could be used at sea. But just because we had a way of telling the time more accurately, it didn't mean that everybody was able to. We asked Richard Evans, Regis Professor of History at the University of Cambridge, what it was like back then. In the early 19th century... The vast majority of people in Europe, and for that matter, and the rest of the world, lived in the countryside and worked the fields or did associated jobs of one sort and another. About 85% of Europeans were country dwellers, and they didn't have watches. The uh, clocks were sometimes on the church tower, but mostly not. The only way you could tell the time really was by looking at the sun and seeing its movement across the sky from dawn to, through noon to dusk. 
Occasionally you might be able to hear church bells ringing for the morning or the evening service. But um, that was really it. So, of course, because uh, the sun moves across the sky at different pace and different times and different places, depending on how far north you are or south or east or west, then time varied from place to place. Then along came the Industrial Revolution. Workers in factories were being paid by the hour, so they didn't want to be late. So they started to tell the time in the, fa- in the factory by the blowing of the factory whistle for them to uh, come into work half an hour before and then on an hour. By 1890, they were actually clocking on and clocking off machines in factories and workers needed watches. So in the early 19th century, the world production of pocket watches is about 400,000 a year. It's two and a half million a year by 1875, and then as industrialization on the continent is really underway by this time, uh, it's said to be that there were 12, 12 million pocket watches in Germany alone by the turn of the century. There's an enormous expansion uh, of the production of pocket watches and, and clocks. It was the railways that made all this more important. But railways needed, of course, to be able to tell the time as they spread from mid-century onwards. And so, for example, the Irish mail train leaving Euston Station every morning for Ireland carried an admiralty messenger with a watch which gave the correct London time, and he passed this watch on to officials on the steam boat to Holyhead and to Dublin, and then it went on the return journey all the way back to London, so that on the train you could always know what the time in London was. But there still wasn't a standard time in different cities around the country. Travelling on a train... Uh, say, from London to Bristol in the 1860s, you'd just need to change your watch every, every station, at every station you came to pretty, pretty much to get, get the local time. And that obviously wasn't very good for the railways, so they began to uh, press for a standardisation of time. By, by the mid to late 1860s, you've got essentially most towns now are, are switching to, to Greenwich Mean Time in Britain. It wasn't until the 1880s that the world got around to sitting down and sorting this all out. In 1884, there's a big international conference in Washington uh, in America which agrees on what we now know to be the time zones measured from Greenwich Mean Time, a line going from uh, going through, through London uh, and dividing up with the international date line in the Pacific. Uh, the French didn't really like the uh, time being governed by the Greenwich Mean Time. So they described their own, ti- their own time actually in Paris time uh, without actually mentioning Greenwich Mean Time. And there's even a, a, a Frenchman who tried to blow up the Greenwich Observatory in protest uh, and was used by Joseph Conrad in his novel The Secret Agent. Let's take a step back from European geopolitics. Most of the world may have agreed on how to tell the time, but scientists weren't convinced that the clocks of the mid-20th century were doing it accurately enough. At the National Physical Laboratory in Britain in the 1950s, scientists developed the atomic clock. As Ken Grattan explains, the atomic clock measures the transition of a cesium atom. It's just a transition from a cesium atom that has had some uh, some energy inputted to it uh, to a cesium atom that uh, has lost that energy. And so that transition is a very reliable transition in terms of the frequency that relates to it. And so by defining that frequency exactly, 
then what you define is a, a period of frequency and therefore a period of time. Uh, the, the material that was used was cesium. Uh, cesium uh, is a very stable material. It, it can be produced in a, uh, in a gaseous form so that it can be uh, used in the clock. And uh, one particular isotope of cesium, cesium-133, is the one that's uh, used. What you have is uh, a definition of time now based around the cesium clock. Uh, and that definition is internationally accepted. Um, and so um, from that point of view, to, to change the definition of time now requires uh, international agreement. And as you can imagine, that doesn't occur uh, on, on a week-by-week basis. But cesium isn't the only element on the block. And the hunt is still on for other elements that could do the job even better. Rubidium is one that's, that's being considered at the moment, but there are, are various other possibilities. Even after all this effort to measure time in the most accurate way possible, it's still a little clunky. After atomic clocks were invented, scientists realised that our timekeeping system doesn't quite match up with what's going on in nature and astronomy, as Marcus Kuhn, senior lecturer in computer science at Cambridge, explains. It became a problem that the length of the day that we had used so far in order to measure time isn't actually constant. The unit second that we use today is defined by dividing a typical length of the day as it was around the time 1820. But the problem is that our Earth is gradually slowing down. So every 100 years, a day becomes about 1.7 milliseconds longer. The solution? Not leap years, leap seconds. We repeatedly have to insert now another second in order to keep our atomic time scale in sync with how the Earth is oriented. Leap seconds, on average, have to be inserted about once every um, one to two years. And there are fixed dates for that. It's either done at uh, the end of July or at the end of um, December. The Earth isn't spinning down uh, constantly because there is mass shifting around inside the Earth. So a little bit like uh, a pirouette dancer can uh, increase their angular velocity by pulling in their arms or reducing their speed by stretching out their arms. The Earth similarly is sometimes speeding up a little bit and is slowing down a little bit. So what would happen if we just got rid of leap seconds? Nothing dramatic would happen immediately. The concerns are more sort of culturally and what happens in the long run because our astronomical time and civilian time would start drifting gradually apart and after 600 years they would be about half an hour apart. After a thousand years they would be an entire hour apart so we would have to change then civilian time zones to compensate for that. The location where the international standard time is the same as the local time would no longer be on the prime meridian that goes through Greenwich. It would gradually start rotating eastwards. So it would go through Paris and then Berlin and then Moscow in a few thousand years. A couple of Instruments and artifacts uh, wouldn't work anymore as we are used to them. So sundials, for example, would have to be fitted with correction tables because our official time is no longer defined by the precise location of the sun in the sky. 
And that would cast a shadow over our oldest way of telling time. That was our society editor, Gemma Ware, with a brief history of telling the time. It's weird to think how the Industrial Revolution turned time, accurate time, into this sort of commodity with, with decent clocks being the must-have high-tech accessory uh, of, of their day. Of course, there's the case that we've always had an inbuilt ability to tell the time. After all, we instinctively wake up when the sun rises in the morning and animals, of course, naturally hibernate. But how do these internal mechanisms work? I asked Dr. Mark Booner, a cognitive psychologist at Cardiff University, about how time is perceived deep within our brains. The current understanding, or the best-fitting theory, is that indeed um, there is such a thing as an internal clock. And according to that theory, the way it works is that um, there is a component called a pacemaker, think like a metronome, that emits pulses at a semi-regular rate, and another component called the accumulator that counts them. And then basically time perception works by the more pulses are accumulated, the more time we think has passed. So if you're asked to sit still for two minutes, for example, when I say go, a switch flicks in the brain, that's metaphorically, and starts counting, starts accumulating those pulses. And when the number of pulses reaches a particular threshold, based on our memory of what two minutes is like, then we stop counting and we think, okay, two minutes are up. And so have there been studies that have measured these pulses being emitted in our brains? Well, that's the sticky point, really. And this is very much still ongoing research. We haven't actually been able to track down where in the brain those pulses are emitted. So it's not the case that we know there's a little metronome in our head that constantly emits those pulses. At the moment, this is very much still a theory, but one that, of course, has a strong intuitive appeal. It just makes sense to us to think of it in this way because all other ways of how we track time is by attending to regular changes in our environment, like the daily rising and setting of the sun, and these sorts of things. So you mentioned the, the rising and the setting of the sun. I guess that's a kind of external way that we perceive the way that time changes. How does the kind of external and the internal differ? Yeah, that's um, really interesting that you mentioned that. So many experiments have been done in both human and non-human animals about what's called the circadian rhythm. So we have the natural um, 24-hour sleep-wake cycle. Um, so the question is, is that something that's within us naturally, or is that something that just emerges from the environment because light changes according to the 24-hour cycle? So if you put animals or humans into conditions where they do not have access to natural daylight and you remove for the humans all other external sources of timing, so no clocks, no calendars, and obviously no email and these sorts of things, and basically give people free reign on their activities so they can go to sleep whenever they like, um, they can eat whenever they like. Uh, what emerges is that um, people and animals live according to an approximate but not an exact 24-hour cycle. And I believe that the cycle is slightly shorter than 24 hours, so 23 hours and a bit. 
And in nature, what happens then is that this slightly shorter cycle is adjusted every day. We call this entrainment. So you could think of it perhaps like a clock that's a little bit fast and once a day it's reset to be back on track. And back to this issue of time being experienced differently. You mentioned earlier how if if I was asked to sit still for two minutes and calculate how long that that two minutes would be, I'd be kind of honing in on my my so-called pacemaker in my brain. Could you just explain a little bit more about why it is that you know, there are these moments, for example, where time seems to stand still, or there are these moments where time seems to, to just escape us. Yeah, so this is something that this internal clock theory can explain quite well, because there is scope for attention to influence our time perception. So if I ask you to sit still for two minutes, um, probably those two minutes will feel very long, because you have got nothing else to do. So all you're doing in a way, is paying attention to time passing. Whereas in contrast, if I asked you how much time has passed while you were doing some other activity, so while you were having fun, perhaps engaged in conversation or watching a movie or or something that basically um, distracts your attention away from time, time might subjectively feel to have passed quicker. And how does time interact with our different senses? So, for example, our... Um, attention to light or attention to touch do they do they have a relationship at all yes so that that's um, a slightly different matter and in fact it's not quite well understood yet how that relates to sort of the direct time perception that we just talked about but um, critically if you think of our perceptual system we get different types of information all the time arriving at our brain so for a single event like for instance if i were to bang my fist on the table, I would get information delivered to my brain about the visual events. I could see my fist arriving at the table, obviously, and the sound of the bang. And all these different types of information arrive at the brain at slightly different times. The reason for that is that the conduction velocities with which the nerves conduct the different sensory information are different. So in the brain, we have these, for argument's sake, three different sources of information arriving all at different times. And what our brain needs to do is create a unified percept. If it wouldn't do that, so if our brain wouldn't pull these three streams of information together in time, our experience would be completely disorganized. We wouldn't be able to say that that was a single event. So, for example, if in in the context of movement, if I were to plan to bang my fist on the table, my brain forms what's called a motor program or a motor intention, and it activates the relevant muscles to carry out that action and constantly compares the prediction of that action with the actual outcome. So if I plan to bang the table, I have a certain anticipation that that will happen and that I will hear the sound, that I see it, that I feel it, and so forth. And when that prediction matches um, my actual experience, then all is well. And I think, yep, I've done that. I can move on now. There are some people who seem to have difficulty with this. And in particular, a certain subtype of patients with schizophrenia, so patients who have what's called the delusional subtype of schizophrenia, they sometimes have very strange experience. They might report that 
they're not in control of their body. So they might move their arm around and might say somebody else or something else is in charge of my arm or of my hand. By the way, this is also related to a phenomenon that we all know. We cannot tickle ourselves. No way. When I tickle myself under the, under the armpit, I don't laugh. But if you tickle me, I would. And the reason for that is, is exactly that, that when I do it to myself, I have this prediction of what's going to happen. And therefore, I already anticipated and, and my body compensates for it. So there you go, everybody. Try as you might. Your brain is just not wired to let you tickle yourself. But even though time is wired into our brains, it's not yet clear if it's something we could one day take control of and manipulate. Yep, we couldn't have a podcast about time without dealing with the huge, fantastical idea of time travel. We asked our science editor, Stephen Harris, to investigate. You've almost certainly wanted to try going back in time to change something in your past, or perhaps travel to the future to see what life is like for your descendants. Science fiction can paint pictures of what this experience might be like. But can science fact give us a hint of whether it might actually be possible? And how might we go about achieving time travel? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Dr. Marika Taylor, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the University of Southampton. So Marika, is time travel possible? Well, over the last 20 years or so, scientists have explored whether Einstein's theory of general relativity allows the possibility of time travel. But already in your introduction, you referred to the fact that you know, people would like to go back to the past and change things. So there is a problem of time travel. You could have a paradox, like you go back to the past and you accidentally kill your own parents, your grandparents, before you were born. So most scientists believe that any sensible theory shouldn't actually allow you to do that. They shouldn't allow you to go back to the past and try and change things. Because it would create this paradox and that just would be impossible. That's right. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't go to the future. You couldn't have a one-way ticket to the future. So one idea for that would be that you make a shortcut to the future. You make something called a wormhole that takes you from a point now, perhaps to somewhere in the future, and allows you to get there instantaneously. So you travel, in a sense, faster than the speed of light to get there, and you beat everything else to arrive. Wow, that sounded amazing. Can you tell us what should people imagine when they're thinking of a wormhole? Yes, so a wormhole, you should think of it as a, a little shortcut between two points in your space-time, so some, some point now and some point in the future. It's a, it's a little tunnel that you can go through that allows you to get faster between the points than you could from going the long way around through the space-time that you can actually see. So the big question is how you could actually construct such a wormhole, whether that's actually possible to construct. And that's the thing that people have been exploring over the past 20 years or so, you know, how, how could we actually build a wormhole in principle? How far have we got with that? Have we got any ideas? Well, fortunately, we've come to the conclusion that we would need to use materials that don't seem to exist in the universe to actually oh. build a wormhole. How disappointing. It seems very disappointing. And the other thing that we found is that wormholes are very unstable. So as soon as something goes in, the wormhole actually collapses. So you've got this little tunnel. If you fall in, it immediately collapses on your head and nothing else can actually go in after you. So at the moment, we've got an idea of how it might be possible, but we're not really sure that we could make it work and actually survive the time travel. That's exactly right, yes. So it seems that you know our, our, our grandparents and our parents in the past are safe, but unfortunately we won't be able to get a kind of glimpse of what happens in the future. 
And even if we could get a glimpse of what happens in the future, the person who goes up into the future probably couldn't get back to tell us. Because again, that we'd have this problem of paradoxes, that they might be able to change the future that they've already seen. We get the paradoxes that science fiction movies love so much. Wow. Well, my mind is blown. But uh, before space and time collapses in on itself, uh, hopefully, we're going to turn that slot into a regular Ask an Academic feature in the anthill where... Much as Stephen has just been posing questions to an astrophysicist, next time you, listeners, ask the questions. Next month we're running a special episode on the EU referendum and we've also got a show on underdogs in the works. So if you've got any questions you want answered, you can email them over to podcast at theconversation.com. So from collapsing wormholes now to people stuck in a far more real sort of time-related limbo... When people do time in the traditional sense, they're usually given a sentence, a fixed term of incarceration. Now, it might be a month, it might be five years, but you know more or less when your term will end. You might even be given the opportunity to reduce that sentence through your own behaviour. But one particular group of people is not afforded that luxury. And these are, in fact, some of the most vulnerable people in the world. People seeking asylum after fleeing war and poverty. Here's our politics editor, Laura Hood. In the UK, asylum seekers can be kept in indefinite detention while their applications are being processed and after their requests to stay have been rejected. They can be detained in special centres for weeks, months and even years. These people, who may well have already experienced severe trauma, are living in limbo right under our noses. One group is seeking to raise awareness of their plight by recreating Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in the form of the Refugee Tales. I spoke to one of the team, David Hurd, a professor of modern literature at the University of Kent, about life in limbo. A person is detained at the point at which, in theory, they are about to be removed to their country of origin. So in theory, it's a short period of detention at the end of a process whereby an, an asylum claim has failed. It's defensible on paper in that it ought to be a very temporary period of detention. But it is indefinite in the sense that there is no time limit. And the consequence of there being no time limit is that people can be detained for extremely long periods of time. So over the last 10 years, it's been very common for people to be detained for months and years at the Dover Immigration Removal Centre, which is the centre that I know best. The longest period of detention was uh, four years. There have been other instances of detention up and down the country. Uh, the longest I'm aware of was a man who was detained in Lincoln Prison, not a detention centre, but a prison. He was detained under the rules of uh, immigration detention for nine years. Indefinite detention is happening at centres around the country right now, even at London's Gatwick Airport. Sometimes the people who are being kept in these centres are released, sometimes they are granted asylum, and sometimes they are deported. They could come from anywhere, but typically their homes are regions affected by war, such as Afghanistan and Iraq, or countries experiencing breakdown and ethnic tensions. Their stories are characterised at best by confusion and at worst by extreme trauma. The person who is detained is not charged with any crime, they are detained for the purposes of being removed. Almost invariably, they won't have anticipated the moment at which they will have been detained. Um, so it always comes as a shock. 
and uh, very often when they are detained, uh, they're not exactly clear where it is that they are detained, so they might know the name of the institution, but they don't know where the institution is. Uh, it's quite often the case that if they have a network of friends or supporters, that the, 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 they are separated from that group of friends and supporters um, by the distance between the detention centre and wherever it was they were living. It's very, very common that people who are detained become depressed, and there's a very high incidence of mental health problems associated with detention, precisely because of the protracted nature of the detention. At any point, a person might be told that they are uh, imminently to be removed or to be deported. Um, and so you can imagine that that combination of uncertainty on the question of duration combined with the kind of constant threat that they that person might be removed is a fairly is a is a fairly acute problem to be dealing with um so for an example in uh, one of the tales that we told in the refugee tales project was a tale called the appellant's tale and the person uh, whose tale was being told there reported that uh he would uh, he would be sharing a room with somebody and then he would wake up in the morning and find that the person he was sharing a room with um, had had been removed or had been deported. So you can imagine the kind of shock that that presents. People also report being kind of repeatedly woken at at very early hours in the morning with the suggestion that they might be about to be removed and then perhaps not be about to be removed. So one way or another, the whole situation feels extremely precarious. Experiences, of course, differ, but some say it feels worse than prison, specifically as a consequence of the indefiniteness. It has become clear that the uncertainty about the length of time they are to spend in detention makes life particularly hard for these people. David estimates that thousands of people are indefinitely detained in the UK at any one time, and many, many more are at risk of being detained at any moment. The parliamentary inquiry into indefinite detention, which was cross-party, reported very clearly that um, the policy of indefinite detention ought to be brought to an end as a matter of urgency, because it's inhumane and cruel, and the human cost of the policy is, uh, is a scandal, um, as, the, as the committee found. So that was a very, it was a very positive development that there was a kind of cross-party consensus on that question. The disappointment is that in the, in the present immigration bill, the immigration bill that's going through Parliament, the government recommits itself to indefinite Im immigration detention. So in other words, it hasn't taken account of uh, the parliamentary inquiry. The inquiry happened before the last election, and obviously there's been a change of regime in the meantime. While the government makes up its mind about what to do, David's group wants these people to be heard, which is where Refugee Tales comes in. Just like Chaucer's pilgrims, David's group takes a journey together, stopping along the way to tell stories. But where Chaucer brought us the knight's tale, the miller's tale and the parson's tale, this group is telling the tales of the people trapped in uncertainty in these immigration centres, as well as those who work with and around them. So we hear the detainee's tale, the deportee's tale, the solicitor's tale and even the lorry driver's tale. Here's a reading from The Arriver's Tale. I was released in 2011, only to return to the limbo I was in before I'm not allowed to walk. 
I've now been here for eight years. I have no choice but to live where I'm told to live and wait for the next hearing to allow my application to be considered. Do you know what limbo means? It means the edge of hell. The point of the project was to communicate the experience of indefinite detention, but also at the same time to um, make manifest the journeys that people have made in coming over here. So what we did was uh, our journey last year, and it's being repeated again this year, but slightly different form. The journey last year was from Dover to Crawley. So and we, we traveled along the North Downs Way. It took nine days to do the walk, and at every stop along the way, two tales were told. One was the tale of a refugee or an asylum seeker. The other was the tale of somebody who worked with um, refugees or asylum seekers. The object was simply to communicate those tales to people who wouldn't ordinarily have heard them, so the local audiences that we, uh, that we encountered along the way. David's group made its first journey last summer and will be on the road again in July, travelling from Canterbury in Kent to Westminster in London, stopping along the way to share the tales of the people living in timeless uncertainty, sentenced to limbo on British soil. You can find out more at refugeetales.org. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this episode of The Ant Hill. A big shout-out to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios, and to Dave Goodfellow for all his help. The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and myself with help from Ali Kingston, Khalil Kasamali, Michael Parker and Josephine Lethbridge. The Conversation is funded by UK universities and research bodies. Check out our website, theconversation.com or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Annabelle and I will be back next month with some different takes on the possibility of a Brexit. Thanks to all the academics who spoke to us and thanks to you, the listeners, for listening in. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>